Well, good morning, church. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. It is good to see you all on this Lord's Day. If you have your Bibles, we open up to Hebrews chapter 5. We're looking at Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10 this morning. And if you're able, out of reverence to God's holy and inspired word, would you please stand as it is read this morning? This is the word of the Lord. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for all those of the people. And no one takes this honor on for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your word this morning as your people that your Holy Spirit would be opening our hearts, opening our ears. Lord, may you be teaching us. Be with he who speaks, his sins are many. But Lord, your word is powerful. Lord, may, you be tra- may we as your people be transformed because of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I have a confession to make. I'm okay right now. But by next Sunday, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I'm really not looking forward to next Sunday, and here's why. Uh, Next Sunday is January 7th. Of course, January 7th is the day after Epiphany. January 6th is the Feast of Epiphany, which is the day the church calendar that celebrates the visitation of the wise men to Mary and Jesus, which means that by next Sunday, all the decorations will be gone. By next Sunday, the Christmas trees and the lights and the poinsettias will all be put away. By next Sunday, all the parties will be over. All the delicious food will be put away in favor of more healthy fare. And it feels, as Mr. Tumnus described, it is winter in Narnia and has been for oh so very long. It is always winter, but never Christmas. Christmas. This season that we are still celebrating. There are 12 days of Christmas. We're on day number, what, seven right now. Don't skip ahead. Don't try to get past it. But the celebration of the coming of Emmanuel, the coming of God with us to redeem his people, absolutely is worth celebrating. But we have to ask the question, what is our hope truly in? As we turn the page from 2023 to 2024, as you have to learn how to write the new dates on, well, checks aren't really much of a thing anymore, but if you write checks or write notes or whatever, learning how to write the new, new dates, the question is, where is your hope for the new year? And is the joy 
of Christmas, able to carry with you into the new year once all the lights and the trees and the parties are gone. If Christmas, if the joy and the hope of Christmas is only experienced in decorations and in presents, it is not enough to sustain us through what the church calendar calls ordinary time. Y'all, the truth is that Christmas and Good Friday and Easter Sunday have to go together. They have to go together. Otherwise, we will end up discouraged and jaded. The big question around Christmas, especially after all the fun of the season, all the celebration of the season, when all that is passed, the big question of Christmas is, does this Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, resurrected on the third day, Does this Jesus answer my deepest needs? Is this the Savior that I really need? And what the author of Hebrews is doing, as we get up now to Hebrews chapter 5, is he is making this emphatic declaration, yes, Jesus is the Savior that we need. Need. We started back in September uh, working through the book of Hebrews together in our sermon series, and we're calling it Jesus is Better, so don't give up. That's the theme that the author of Hebrews keeps coming back to over and over again, is that Jesus is better. The author of Hebrews has given us multiple reasons why Jesus is better and will continue to do so. And specifically talking about the idea of Jesus as the high priest. This passage that we're looking at this morning, Hebrews chapter 5, is going to emphasize these things in particular about Jesus being the high priest that we need. The one that is resurrected is the one that answers our needs. The one that we celebrate his birth and his coming throughout Christmas. But we celebrate that birth looking forward to his death and his resurrection. He is the Savior that we need. He is the priest that we need. And how is Jesus the Savior and priest that we need? How is Jesus the true hope for the new year and beyond? There are three things I want to look at. We want to see, I want us to see that Jesus is the better high priest, number one. Number two, I want to see that Jesus is the better high priest because he is the high priest who offers sacrifice for our sin. And number three, I want to see that Jesus is the better high priest because he is the high priest that knows compassion for his people. We're taking it easy this morning. We're going low key. You'll know, well, the pulpit will be coming back. Don't worry about that. But normally I have notes and slides and everything. We're just going low-key, so if you need me to repeat those and you can write them down, uh, happy to do so. But this morning, first off, I want to see that Jesus is a better high priest. Again, the theme of Hebrews over and over again is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Y'all, as a culture, we obsess over this idea of better. Everything, if you've noticed, has rankings and ratings Not just sports teams, but restaurants, banks, laundry detergent, cars, political candidates, 
Go on Amazon, try to buy anything, and you will see how many people have rated that product and how many stars they've given to it. Even churches. If you go look up Church of the Redeemer on Google, we have a rating on Google. Now, thankfully, I don't, for what it's worth, we have a five-star rating. Thank you to the 17 people that have rated Church of the Redeemer and have given us a five-star rating. <laughs> now, I'm not asking everybody to go on Google and overload it. We don't need to do that. But I just think it's funny that people are like, let's rate a church. Okay. But we, while the way that we rank and rate things is a modern idea, this idea of comparison, this idea of trying to figure out which is better than the other is not an, a new idea. This is an ancient idea. And it's what the author of Hebrews is tapping into through the whole book. And our passage this morning, again, the author of Hebrews is digging into the Old Testament priesthood that his audience, being Hebrews, Jewish believers in Jesus Christ, his audience would have deeply understood but he's doing that in order to evaluate more thoroughly what makes for a better high priest. So first off, the real question is, do you need a priest? Now in our modern uh, society, we have lost a bit of that understanding. You may say to someone, do you need a priest? And like, no, I don't need a priest. I don't know what a priest does. Priests wear fancy clothes and they say words in languages I don't understand in front of a group of people that don't understand what they're saying either. That's maybe the limit of our understanding of priests. But we've talked about this before through our study of Hebrews. This is not the first nor the last time that the author of Hebrews will be talking about the high priesthood of Jesus. And Adam has done a fantastic job in previous sermons of explaining how the priest represents sinful people before a holy God. But y'all, the truth is, there is indeed a chasm, a space, a separation between holy God and sinful man. And every worldview, every religion, every faith system attempts to answer that question somehow. How are you made right? How do you bridge that gap between yourself and the deity, whatever they call it? Some worldviews say that you have to work hard enough. Here is the plan, here is the path, follow it, follow it well enough, do it well enough, and you just might get there. Some say that you have to escape these perceived boundaries of time and space and transcend them beyond them. Some say that actually there really is no gap, you just need to know and believe that there is no gap and just feel it and understand it and you're actually okay. But y'all, the God of the Bible says, you know what, no, there is a gap. There is a chasm. There is a separation between God and man. You are sinful. You are far from God. And the worst news is, there's nothing you can do about it. But the gospel, the good news is, God says, there's nothing you can do about it, but God says, I will come, and I will bridge that gap. I will come to, set, to, to, to bring you back to myself. I will save and to the end, to that end, God gave the priesthood and the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And y'all, as you read about the priesthood in the temple, in the book of Exodus and, and the Pentateuch, then the point never was, God never said, you know what, if you kill enough animals, you'll be okay. 
If you just kill enough bulls and rams and sheep and goats and birds, if you kill enough, if there's enough blood in the temple, then you'll be okay. No, that was never the intention. The Old Testament was always simply pointing the way to Jesus, showing in concrete, tangible, tactile ways what Jesus would ultimately and truly and fully do. Y'all, we do in fact need a priest to go on our behalf to God, to make that sacrifice to God. But we also need a priest who is able to sympathize with those whom he represents. And this is Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 4, talking about the Old Testament priesthood, which God started with Aaron, the brother of Moses. And that priesthood would extend through the line of Aaron. And y'all, in one regard, Aaron truly was a really good, really qualified high priest because Aaron was a sinner. We read in at least a couple of places in the Old Testament about Aaron's big sins. In Exodus 32, Aaron made the golden calf that the people worshipped while Moses was up on Mount Sinai. And then in in Numbers chapter 12, Aaron, along with Miriam, spoke against Moses and his leadership. You find it odd that the Bible would go into such detail about this person, this man who was the start of the priesthood and say, you know what, Let's, let's, let's show out really how sinful he was. I think God is telling us something about our own nature, but about the priest. So the high priest, as Hebrews says, had to first offer sacrifices for his own sake. He says, I am a sinner. I have to offer sacrifices on my own, for my own sin, before I can begin to think about offering sacrifices on behalf of the people that I represent. The high priest knows what it is to be broken. He knows what it is to be sinful. He knows what it is to be humble. He knows what it is to be needy. And because of that, he can be gentle with compassionate, wayward, sinful sheep. But we also see that the high priest was exalted. Not because of who they were, but because they were appointed by God. They were called by God and chosen by God. It is not that Aaron was better, a better man than anyone else, but because he was chosen by God for that task. In the Old Testament, you couldn't just decide, you know what, I think God's calling me to the priesthood. In our church, any man who feels a call of God has the opportunity to explore that call, to possibly go to seminary and become a pastoral intern and pursue pastoral ministry. There's a lot of checks along the way, but it's not restricted to, well, who's your dad? If your father wasn't a priest, then you can't be a pastor kind of thing. But in the Old Testament, very much was you had to be of the line of Aaron. God chose Aaron and his descendants to be the high priest. And even in Leviticus 17, there are the stern warnings about if anyone tries to offer sacrifices who's not the priest, they have a blood guilt upon them and they are to be put out of the camp and treated like a murderer. And also we see in Exodus 28, this chosen and exalting of the high priest by God. And they see the the high priestly garments that they would wear, that God himself said, design this, design this, design the the breastplate and the ephod and the, the whole clothing setup. Beautiful apparel that matched the glory of the tabernacle and the temple. So stationed in between God and man, 
The sons of Aaron received this privileged position to draw near to God on behalf of the people. And so the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5, in verse 5, follows all this up with, so also Christ. He's described the Old Testament priesthood and what the priests did and who they were, and now he says, so also Christ. And he quotes two Psalms. He quotes Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, for the second time, where he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he quotes from Psalm 110, for you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So you are my son, today I have begotten you. Begotten, not created. This is back to our Advent sermon last Sunday morning. If you missed that, I'd encourage you to go listen to it. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, as the Nicene Creed, which we will confess together in just a moment. But also we have this idea of being a high priest forever. Y'all, and that, that is significant because every other high priest obviously had limited terms of service. They would either get too old to be able to continue as high priest or they would die. And by this point, they are all gone. They're all dead. But Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews points out, is the high priest forever. The final, last high priest. And then after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you hear that and go, oh boy, good, Melchizedek, you get excited. Uh, I'm going to ask you to hold on. Because the writer of Hebrews, actually in Hebrews chapter 7, which we will be in a few weeks, goes into more detail. So we're going to actually kind of put that on the shelf just for right now. We'll get into that in more detail later. But what, briefly, what he's saying is that Jesus' line was not from Aaron. Obviously, we, we've studied that over the Advent se- uh, season, that Jesus' line was from the line of King David, this royal line of King David that we see there of Matthew's begats in Matthew chapter 1. But that doesn't mean that Jesus was an illegitimate high priest, that he was somehow functioning as a high priest when he shouldn't have. But what Hebrews is pointing out is that he was of this better line, this line of Melchizedek, which the Hebrew audience would have understood. But again, that's Hebrews chapter 7. So Jesus is the better high priest because he is the eternal high priest whose high priesthood never ends, and he is of the superior priestly line. So we've established that Jesus is the better high priest. But what does Jesus as the better high priest, what does he do? He offers gifts and sacrifices. We see two main things in this passage. Verse 1 says that Jesus, like every high priest, offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. We also see there in verse 7, Jesus says, it says that Jesus offers up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. We see that most clearly in in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus' arrest. In Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. And while the Aaronic priests of the Old Testament offered birds and animals, we see there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, our high priest, offers something else. He offers himself. When he was praying He prayed, Lord, let this cup, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And what was the will of the Father? That Jesus himself 
would be offered as the sacrifice, the perfect, real, eternal, fulfilling sacrifice, the sacrifice that all of those thousands or millions of animals had been pointing forward to on behalf of the sins of his people. Hebrews points out that Jesus prays to the one who is able to save him from death, and literally the phrase is out of death, that is to the Father. And the Father hears his prayer. Now the Father doesn't save him from death, but saves him out of death, which means that for our sake, for your sake, for my sake, Jesus walked into death to take on death, to kill death by his own death. It is conquered. He conquered death through death. And we read here in Hebrews that God the Father answered the prayers of God the Son of Jesus Christ. Now we may take that for granted. We may think, well, of course God heard his prayers. That's what God does. Because somehow we get our theology of prayer from Bruce Almighty and not from Scripture. That's what God's job is, right? God's job is to answer prayers. And we often are confused by unanswered prayers. We think, I prayed for healing. I prayed for restoration. I prayed for provision. I prayed for the job. And it didn't happen. And we get confused. But y'all, as you read through the Bible... The question is much more, not why didn't God answer my prayers, but the question really is throughout, why does God ever answer prayers? On what basis does God ever hear and answer the prayers of anybody, of any sinful person? Y'all, actually the foundation is revealed to us here in Hebrews chapter 5. The foundation of every prayer that you pray, that I pray, The foundation of any prayer of any of God's people is because they are prayed through the one who is the real and better high priest through Jesus himself. He's the only one who prayed perfectly. We see this in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because... Of his reverence. Now, carrying on, verse 8 gets interesting. Verse 8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience. Now, that may be confusing. You may think, wait a minute, Jesus is God. He is the I am. He said so in John chapter 8. He is the eternal and the omniscient and all the big God words you want to use. How could he learn anything? Again, back to last week, we looked at God, the, the son of God and the son of man. The divine and the human natures of Jesus Christ. And in his human nature, Jesus learned obedience through his suffering through his active and passive obedience. His active obedience of obeying the law and fulfilling the law, but his passive obedience of enduring the suffering of being a man in general, but specifically of the cross itself and his crucifixion. And verse 9 continues that through Jesus, through this Jesus, 
who learned obedience is the source of our eternal salvation. Verse 9 says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. So as we think about our salvation, we have to ask this question. If I were to ask you, how or why are you saved? What might you say? What are some of the common sort of answers? Well, you may respond that Jesus died on the cross for me, which is absolutely true. You may respond that Jesus rose again for me, also true and accurate. But consider, Jesus is not the only man to have died on a cross. There were two other men with Jesus on the same hill on the same day who also died on a cross. Did they die for you? Were they possible, possible of dying for you? The Romans crucified a lot of people. They were really good at it. Are any one of these other ones possible to have died on the cross for you? Y'all, the Romans didn't even invent crucifixion. The Carthaginians invented crucifixion. The Romans just borrowed it and made it their own. Are any of these other myriads of people, could you say they died on the cross for you? Even Peter the Apostle, who also died on a cross? Jesus, of course, we know, well, we know that none of these others could have died for you. Their deaths on the cross is not functional for you in any way. Was well, it because Jesus rose again? Well, again, Jesus is not the only one to have resurrected from the dead. Jesus resurrected many in his ministry. We see resurrections throughout Scripture in different ways. So it's not sufficient to say only Jesus died on the cross and rose again. What is it about the work of Jesus that saves us? His death on the cross, his resurrection is absolutely critical to our salvation. Absolutely. Don't hear me say it's not. But there's something more that has to go into that. Romans chapter 5 verses 18 and 19 brings this out. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. It is Jesus's obedience and righteousness that saves us. He learned obedience through suffering, ultimately fulfilled in his death on the cross, and verified and given God's amen in his resurrection. Verse 9 continues that Jesus being made perfect. How can Jesus, who is God, be made perfect? Again, in his human nature, Jesus accomplished and perfected the law. He perfectly fulfilled the law as our high priest. That is why Christmas and Easter aren't simply a couple days apart in the Scripture. That's why we don't have the birth of Christ. Luke 2, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, and then take baby Jesus on the eighth day and not just have him circumcised on the eighth day, but let's take him and let's just go ahead and sacrifice him in the temple on the eighth day. You ever thought about that? Why does Jesus have to grow up? He's already the perfect God-man. He's already Emmanuel, God with us. Why why didn't God just have Jesus taken and sacrificed right then? Why wait 33 years? Because Jesus had to, through his life, fulfill the law. To be made perfect. To accomplish, to earn our righteousness. 
to earn the righteousness that we could not earn. So that when the time came for him to be that sacrifice for our sake, he was not only taking away our sin and the guilt and the punishment that goes with it, but he was giving us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that is why our high priest knows compassion. He knows compassion. He is sympathetic towards us because he has walked in our shoes literally. He has been tempted as we have been tempted. He has suffered as we have suffered. He is not far off and distant. He knows us deeply, personally, intimately. Then verse 9 and 10 continue that the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, to all who obey him. Wait, are we getting into a work salvation now? Is the writer of Hebrews saying you better earn it? You better be good enough to earn what Jesus has to offer you? No. No. This is not a call to work salvation. It's not a call that says, if you're good enough, you can earn the salvation that God might provide in Christ. No, no, no. What we see, this obedience that the writer of Hebrews is calling for, is the same obedience that Jesus himself called for. And that obedience is belief. In John 6, 47 through 51, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Everything we need to obey, everything we need to follow him is found in Jesus. What Jesus says over and over again is come to me, come to me, dwell in me, abide in me. Christ is the perfect high priest who knows us deeply, intimately, perfectly. And he's commanded us to come to feast of him, to be nourished of him, to be filled of him. He commands us later in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, to abide in Him. He says, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus doesn't say work harder. Jesus doesn't say figure it out. He doesn't just say quit, quit messing up. Jesus says, I know you. I know your sinfulness. I know your brokenness. I've walked with you. I've walked in your shoes. He says, come, abide in me. Feast upon me. Feast of the meal that I provide you. The meal that we're going to be going to in just a bit that this table points towards. Feasting upon Jesus. And then he commands us in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, to take up his yoke. 
Where he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Y'all, as we go into 2024, I think this resonates. I know it resonates with me. This need of rest for our souls. That rest is found only in the high priest who's given himself for us. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would feast upon you, that we would dwell within you and abide with you, that we would be able to take, that we would take up your yoke and find rest. Lord, we were able to do these things because Jesus, our high priest, has come, has offered the perfect sacrifice to bring us back to God. That because of the sacrifice, the work of our high priest, we are made right forever. We don't have to wonder if we're still made right, if we're still okay. Where we are secure and right in our Savior Jesus. We thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.